Previously on American Thought Leaders. You couldn't find a hundred people in Washington, D.C. who could meaningfully talk to you about disinformation in, in 2014. Now, of course, there's a dozen of them in every room that you enter because there's so much money and so much government power behind it. In part one of my interview with Jacob Siegel, senior editor at Tablet Magazine, he explained how the concept of disinformation became a tool of deception used by technocratic officials to manufacture consensus and wage a counterinsurgency-style war on truth. Now in part two... The single most, I would say, significant whole-of-society initiative carried out by the counter-disinformation enterprise was the 2020 Election Integrity Partnership. We dive deeper into technocratic information control, exploring how the Election Integrity Partnership and U.S. agencies colluded with media and big tech to socially engineer the populace using anti-democratic means. We need to permanently end the relationship between the federal government and the technology sector as it exists now. The danger is that in competing with China, we become like China. And that's what has been happening so far. There is something totalizing inherent in the aim of information control. And so the transition from policing electoral infrastructure to defend against foreign disinformation, attacks by hostile foreign governments like Russia, to policing epidemiologists, um, censoring true, accurate, as we now know, reports about the effectiveness of vaccines in preventing transmission or criticism of lockdowns or investigations into the origins of the coronavirus. It may seem like a stretch. It may seem like a, a kind of leap across a, a chasm. But in fact, I think that there is much more continuity than there is discontinuity. And as evidence of that, I would point to the fact that the single most I would say significant whole of society initiative carried out by the counter disinformation enterprise was the 2020 election integrity partnership. Now this was a consortium of four organizations put together with the backing and through the, the kind of official imprimatur of CISA and that is uh, you know through the government itself and this included Stanford University, a company called Graphica that was founded as a Defense Department initiative as part of its counter-jihadist, counter-Islamist um, messaging, um, the University of Washington, and the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Lab. And these four groups got together in this election integrity partnership to carry out um, what internal government documents disclose were roles censoring functions that the government knew it was better off outsourcing to non-governmental third parties. So this has all now been disclosed either through uh, lawsuits or the Twitter files itself. So we know that the government counter-disinformation agencies were looking to offload their censorship duties because of the obvious constitutional problems. And indeed, the head of the Election Integrity Partnership, Alex Stamos, 
says in an internal briefing at one point that gets released to the public later that, you know, we're here to do things that the, the government kind of can't do for legal reasons. This is not because CISA didn't care about disinformation, but at the time they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary to truly understand how election disinformation was operating. You know, it's a very offhanded admission of their role both as a paragovernmental entity, that is to say that they're not a private civic organization. They exist to carry out the responsibilities of government and that those responsibilities are not legal. It's an admission of both of those things. And so that's the Election Integrity Partnership, which censors tens of millions, I think the estimate is something like 22 million pieces of content. You know, they say that they only flagged them. But of course, flagging content was a way of marking what was supposed to be censored as much of it was later censored uh, by the social media companies. But through all of these steps, through all of this outsourcing, it's you keep sort of breaking the chain of um, what you might call accountability. So who's really, we only flagged them, we didn't censor them. So that's the Election Integrity Partnership. And that, after the 2020 election, that partnership, rather than disappearing, as you might expect for a, a, an organization that was created to deal with election integrity, instead rebrands as the Virality Project, with a mission now to uh, censor, flag, monitor, disinformation, misinformation, and what is soon to be called malinformation, the infamous malinformation, which refers to things that are factually true, but have been contextualized in ways that are um, you know, somehow untrue, meaning essentially that they're counter to official, uh, the official narrative. That's what malinformation is a way of saying true but inconvenient, basically, a, a fancy term for that. So that's, that becomes the virality project. And I, I bring this up because there's no great reimagining necessary. There is no institutional remissioning. It's not a big effort. It just transitions from one to the other because in the end, technocratic information control is technocratic information control. And whatever its supposed aim is, whether it's been being carried out because it's going to protect the public from national security threats or from public health related threats. In the end, it's about defending power. In the end, it's about removing the sovereignty of individual actors in a political system and vesting it into an unaccountable technocratic system. That's what underlies it, whatever it claims to be doing. I want to talk a little bit about the Election Integrity Partnership. You know, before it morphed, so to speak, in its effort to secure elections, um, do you view it as having actually interfered with elections? I think what the Election Integrity Partnership did was gross interference in the election. I think that mass censorship is utterly antithetical to and incompatible with 
the holding of free elections. It's antithetical to self-government. It's unconstitutional. It is impossible to say ultimately precisely what effect it had, how many votes were swayed, but we don't have to know that precisely. It's irrelevant, in fact, what precise statistical impact it had. What's important is that it represented a complete break with the principle and procedure of democratic self-government. And it was carried out with the approval of the highest levels of government, the Democratic Party, buy-in from top universities, the gleeful consent of much of the um, media in the United States. It really was the sort of avatar for an entire ruling class effort that treated uh, treated democracy, small d democracy, with open contempt. And it seems to me that that is just incontestable as a matter of fact. I, I'm happy to debate with people how it got to that point, what the ultimate result was, but there is no such thing as a, a mass censorship that is not also hostile to to democracy and to free and fair elections. And indeed, we're capable of recognizing that in every context but this one. And the people who defend it would never defend the similar actions being carried out in China or in Russia. They would know exactly what it was there. But, but somehow here, because of what is taken to be the exceptional threat posed by Donald Trump, and white nationalism, or COVID denial, or climate denial, or transgender rights denial, or whatever the sort of human rights and political emergency that's being cited at the moment is, um, there's a total break with the capacity for reasoning that would tell us that this sort of effort in any other context is nakedly authoritarian. I wanted to just dwell on this for a moment longer. You mentioned in your piece uh, this Time Magazine article that came out in February of 2021, which I thought was like one of the most astonishing things I'd ever read, because it, it was basically like, here's how we did it. People don't seem to remember this article, what I remember. I remember when I read it was like, isn't this actually election interference? But I wonder if a lot of the people involved didn't view it that way. I wonder if they didn't actually believe that they doing some of these things in that article and what we just discussed, they were actually safeguarding democracy. I totally agree with that. I think that most of the people, the clear majority, thought that they were safeguarding democracy. But the way that that occurs, and here I think you know, some classic Marxist class-based analysis can be very helpful, is that their ideology is a projection of their class interests. And so to them, democracy means we stay in power. That's what democracy means to them. Democracy means a political system that benefits us. And how do you reconcile that seemingly obvious contradiction? Because the, the meaning, the, the literal definition of democracy is ultimately far less important than the kind of political connotation given to it. And so these are people, the ones engaged in these democracy suppressing efforts, 
who view themselves as good people. And they view themselves as politically progressive. So of course, they're not going to be on the side of anti-democratic, authoritarian measures. Beginning with the premise that they're good people, they then assign meanings to their actions that concord with that. And it seems uh, that the majority of them, I would say, fall into that group. But now there is another significant minority, and that's an intellectual minority, who become really starting, I think, even before Donald Trump, uh, going back at least to the, the sort of late period of Obama's presidency, who become openly hostile to democracy as a majoritarian mobocracy. And you can see this in some of the critiques that emerge of majoritarianism and of the ways in which democracy can abet white supremacy, let's say, and we need therefore to have strict anti-democratic measures to, to prevent a racist white majority from imposing racist policies on the rest of the country. So there's a sort of uh, creeping anti-democratic sentiment, which to be clear has a very long history in America, and, and you can find uh, plenty of anti-democratic sentiment on the left among sort of elite progressives at the turn of the century and in the early 20th century. But it has a, a recrudescence in the late Obama period that starts with this anti-majoritarianism and then evolves into a full-on attack on freedom of speech because freedom of speech is seen to benefit um, the rabble, the deplorables, freedom of speech in the language of the, the, the defenders of democracy, they make the argument that we can't allow too much freedom of speech, especially online, because it'll be abused by these racists and these trolls. And you see this in movements like the reaction to Gamergate, for instance. You see it in the calls for more regulation and censorship online. And so that is an important minority as well that is seeding an explicitly anti-democratic rationale that's not, not only uh, on the one hand perhaps simply deluding itself by, uh, you know, the sort of mental contortion, um, but is really actually making an argument for why democracy itself is dangerous. And I think that that that's important to grasp because it creates the intellectual rhetorical framework for elevating a class of information regulators above the public. It's, it creates the intellectual and indeed even a legalistic framework for saying the people can't be trusted with unrestricted free speech. You know, first because Russia could poison public discourse or because racists could poison public discourse, or because vaccine skeptics could poison public discourse. Therefore, we need a more tightly regulated internet um, overseen by experts who can control what is being said to protect people from the dangers of mis- and disinformation. And that's an argument that's made by uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, all the way down to junior staffers at nonprofits. Maybe they think that 
with his highly effective social media campaign in 2016. President Trump stole that power and his operations stole that power and they, that can never be allowed to happen again. Through these new, through the internet, through social media, through these social media structures and, and, and also the ability to de-amplify certain voices while amplifying others, you, you can really create a very powerful perception of consensus, which we are very susceptible to. How do we deal with that? I agree. Uh, I should start by saying, you know, I think that that's right. And I, and I do think that um, much of the intensity of the reaction to Trump at the upper levels was not just about Trump himself, but a deeper fear that this ultimately powerful weapon had fallen into the hands of the bad guy, that social media and the internet was the most powerful tool ever invented for managing and molding public perception, and somehow it had fallen into the hands of the enemy, as it were, in Donald Trump. You have to add to that also that such a close relationship had been cultivated between the Democratic Party, or what you might even call more broadly the sort of neoliberal, neoconservative, centrist uniparty of the United States, and the social media companies. You know, let's not forget that Obama led the Facebook campaign and was bragging about the role of social media and getting him elected. And, and he was the, the data politician. He was the guy who was harnessing, his administration was harnessing big data for these sort of progressive great society ends. And that, and Hillary Clinton in the State Department led the internet freedom agenda and was identified closely with the democratizing power of social media as a revolutionary force in the world was decrying the authoritarian measures carried out by governments that censored the internet. So this was the consensus worldview that the internet is ours, ours in the sense that the internet is somehow inherently allied with uh, politically progressive forces. That was a deeply internalized worldview. And there were always reasons to recognize that it was absurd. But of course, with the wind at your back, it's, you sometimes don't see the obvious reality in front of you. And so that was the, the thing that was also betrayed. So when Donald Trump seemed to commandeer social media, when he seemed to take control over Twitter and Facebook, of course he didn't take control in any meaningful sense. It, it was just that absent the direct intervention of regulators and gatekeepers, the opposition to neoliberal consensus was able to express itself. And Clinton was nothing if not the candidate of sort of oligarchic neoliberal consensus. And, and so what Trump's success on Facebook and Twitter really demonstrated was, first of all, his singular talent as a communicator, which is true you know, regardless of your uh, normative judgments about his politics. He was an extraordinary, still is an extraordinary communicator. And it also showed that there was a great deal of resistance to a candidate like Clinton 
as there would have been to a candidate like Jeb Bush. And I think that when, in the end, the social media companies didn't directly intervene in the election in 2016, whatever the euphemism might be, when they didn't um, uh, reduce visibility, reduce amplification of Donald Trump and his supporters, the Democratic Party's uh, officialdom, Hillary Clinton, of course, and her campaign, but also the sort of people around Obama viewed that as a betrayal of their alliance with big tech. And that launched this campaign to blame Facebook for the election of Donald Trump, which was an incredibly effective weapon in bringing Facebook to heel and forcing Facebook to, to really go along with the with the commands of the Democratic Party machine and of the larger sort of uniparty machine from that point forward. I think, frankly, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, would have preferred to stay more neutral. Um, they didn't want to alienate either side as long as they could play both of them. They're, they're out for profit, of course, as is Twitter. But they were forced into becoming more politically active by this coordinated effort um, to blame them for the results of the 2016 election, an effort that also had the support of Facebook and Twitter employees who viewed the election of Donald Trump as a, as a betrayal. So I want to go back to this idea of counterinsurgency, which you know I, I really haven't thought of in the context of this whole system until you, you brought it to my attention. And so if we accept the premise that this is a large-scale counterinsurgency campaign. You know, it makes me think of Afghanistan, right? And I, as I understand it, the counterinsurgency vision was central to what was actually happening there. And this is where you can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, because you know this area much better than, than I do. Are we in for a situation where there's this sort of, you know, perpetual attempts at getting the so-called natives under to, into the correct view of the world? I'm afraid that it is. Um, I, I think that that has two components. One is political and one is technological, and I'll hit the political first. At a certain point, there was a, a change, uh, or you might say a consolidation of a certain anti-democratic attitude in the American ruling class. and. We can date that to Donald Trump. We can date it somewhat before Donald Trump. We can look at the deep roots of it in the uh, liberal and progressive traditions, which have always had both small-D democratic and anti-democratic elements, just as the American right has both small-D democratic and anti-democratic elements. And whatever led to it, the anti-democratic element uh, has won out among the, the kind of liberal establishment in the United States. And the evidence that this has won out is their unwillingness to accept a whole range of opinions which clearly fall not only within the realm of constitutionally and legally protected speech, but which fall within the range of common sense, frankly. Now, you might disagree with them, but the unwillingness to tolerate, for instance, dissent on masking uh, on school shutdowns, the sort of attempts to police out of existence, whole 
fields, whole topics of conversation from Hunter Biden's laptops to uh, gender affirmation for children. This attempt at a, a kind of information control springs from or is motivated by the idea that only certain ideas are correct and acceptable and that ideas that fall outside the pale are not simply wrong or tragically mistaken, but are outside the bounds of acceptable political discourse. Well, what exists outside of politics? What's, what is it, that thing out over there across the horizon on the other side of politics? War, that's the thing. And in much of the world, war is an organizing principle. In America, thankfully, we've mostly lived without that. We've mostly lived within a democratic compromise where differences of opinion, even strenuous, vehement differences of opinion, could be adjudicated peacefully. Or we simply, we simply have a big enough country that we could sort of shuffle off into different parts of it and, and live in a kind of um, tolerant dismissal of one another. You know, at our best, better than that, but that's not so bad if it's the worst tolerant dismissal. But that has broken down. And the reasons why that, that's broken down, I think, are multiple and, and uh, would take a whole other um, episode to fully explicate them. But so that's one part of it. And so we've entered a realm in which uh, the, not simply the methods of the counterinsurgent, but the motivating assumptions of the counterinsurgent, which is that the opposition is illegitimate, exists outside the realm of acceptable politics and must be dealt with by a concerted, uh, coercive effort has become normative. And it's normative across a whole range of political societal issues. And we see it playing out in different ways with different topics. The approach to Hunter Biden's laptop obviously is different than the approach that was taken to lockdowns, but they share in common the idea that there is a, uh, an elite class that has not only the ability, but the right to determine what information can enter public discourse and what information falls outside of it. And that also takes as its right the ability to publish people who fall afoul of those distinctions that it draws. Well, I just might add, and also that that information is true. Absolutely. But I would argue that the principle demands that we tolerate it even if it's not true that the democratic principle demands that people be allowed to be wrong. Because the recourse of the technocratic authoritarian is always going to be that they are defending what is correct on the grounds of public safety or, or some kind of emergency. And if you can prove one time after another after another that they've been wrong about what is correct, they'll say yes, but you know, science gets it wrong sometimes and it evolves. So they'll weasel out of accountability in that way. And to me, the, the principle demands that ultimately, as fallible human beings, we cannot exercise our freedom without the right to be wrong, without the right to be wildly wrong, and that the legal limits around our rights to be wrong need to be very specific. 
very limited, very narrow. And if you're not endangering somebody else, you can have the most odious opinions in the world, the most incorrect opinions in the world. And that's an expression of your freedom. And without that, you're an automaton. Well, and you said wildly wrong, but also, I think importantly, loudly wrong. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. Wrong in public, mm-hmm. um, not only in, in, your, uh, in your home. And, and loud where in public more than one person hears it. Yes. Which is what this kind of you know, ability to algorithmically dial back inconvenient topics creates. I mean, it's, we're in a brave new world here. We're in a brave new world here. The other part of this that relates to counterinsurgency is, again, a topic for another day, but the invention of the Internet in the United States, which grew out of a number of different military projects that converged, some of them dealing with... um, how to automate radar systems. So a problem that emerged out of World War II was that to have effective anti-aircraft systems, effective anti-aircraft batteries, whereas the old analog system had it so that when radar pinged the location of an enemy aircraft, there were human beings who transcribed that location, marked the, the grid coordinates, and then had to continually update that to keep track of where all these different aircraft were in the sky so that you know, they could then be targeted. Um, the effort to automate that radar system is one of the, uh, the precursors of the internet. Uh, another precursor is an effort to create a decentralized communications network that would survive nuclear war. But finally, and crucially, and in a history that's uh, sort of largely been lost or buried, there was a counterinsurgency dimension um, really beginning in the Vietnam War that fueled the creation of the Internet and was absolutely present and explicit uh, from the beginning. And you, you can get this in books like The Pentagon's Brain by Annie Jacobson, which is a history of uh, DARPA, uh, and in a book called Surveillance Valley by a journalist named Yasha Levine that excavates some of this history. But the, the reason for that is that counterinsurgency is an approach to warfare that attempts to manage human populations toward a political goal of some sort. And in doing so, it presumes that the key to victory is ultimate knowledge of a form and that ultimate information control, ultimate knowledge yields finally ultimate control. Now that's quite different than conventional views of warfare which see the destruction of the enemy typically or the, or the seizure of a particular piece of land as the path to victory, but counterinsurgency is not like that. Counterinsurgency attempts to understand uh, a population, to win over hearts and minds, to bend them toward the will of the counterinsurgency. And the internet automated that function. And it automated a sort of grand project of social engineering. And counterinsurgency and social engineering are essentially two sides of the same coin. And so the, the effort at information control and the effort at big data driven governance are two sides of the same coin as well. And I fear that what is occurring now is that 
as we enter the next stage of the information war, the sort of big attention-getting, headline-grabbing incidents like the suppression of Hunter Biden's laptop are going to quickly become relics of a bygone age. And so we won't even have the sort of brazen violations of the Constitution to contend with. Instead, what we'll have is a far more cryptic uh, effort at information suppression and control that is embedded in the infrastructural layer of the internet through artificial intelligence algorithms that are constantly tweaking and recalibrating the information that is reaching us. Who's to say that outward messages can't be censored before they reach their intended recipients and that that kind of all-pervasive, uh, much more subtle but ultimately perhaps far more destructive information system is the one that we're entering. I suppose one of the few ways you could deal with this is to figure out how to inoculate oneself. It's hard to deal with the, with the censorship, but at least you could figure out a way to inoculate yourself from the uh, information manipulation through the, for the, from the persuasion or even algorithmic persuasion somehow. Your thoughts on that and also how to deal with this as a typical person? Well, you know, at the risk of putting us out of business, I think uh, one of the ways to inoculate oneself is to consume less news. Um, much of the national news is um, like just a hair off from being hysterical propaganda or pure entertainment. I mean, much of what fills the national news cycle is uh, essentially emotional manipulation of one form or another. Now, I'm not suggesting that people should cultivate ignorance, but the sort of total immersion in news as a primary form of identity seems to me pretty unhealthy and uh, lends itself directly to manipulation and to, to making oneself susceptible to these sort of wild swings in the news. And uh, you know, I, I take very seriously the warnings from the American historian Daniel Borston about the, uh, basically the manufacture of what he called pseudo-events. And I think there are a lot of pseudo-events these days, and there's a temptation to try and get to the bottom of every pseudo-event and expose the truth of this or that hoax. And maybe there are cases in which that's critical. Obviously, I think there are. I just wrote this long piece exposing the hoax of disinformation. But in many cases, you'd be better off just detaching and you know going to shoot a game of pool or um, taking a walk with a friend or whatever suits your fancy, but not attempting to delve ever deeper into the, the mystery and the puzzle to unlock the ultimate secret. I think that's a false hope in that, and that the ultimate secret is never to be found in the news. You know, the ultimate secret is to be found in our own lives, our families, the people whom we love. And, um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for um, reporters who do the real job of reporting, but they are not the people who you love, I imagine, um, viewer who I'm addressing, and, and nor do they love you. Um, so 
so that that's part of it is to sort of break that cycle. The other part of it is that we need to permanently end the relationship between the federal government and the technology sector as it exists now. The injunction on July 4th to ban the Biden administration from directly communicating with the social media companies is a good start, but it is only the, you know, the, the first shot in what needs to be a much longer, more comprehensive effort to break this relationship, to, to break the alliance between the tech companies and the federal government. And I think ultimately that will require a restructuring of both the government and the tech sector. And the restructuring of the government is going to have to deal with the out-of-control power of both the intelligence agencies, which have, to my mind, forfeited their uh, jurisdiction and authority um, based on their actions over the last six years, and the federal agencies created to thought police Americans. Um, CISA doesn't need to exist. This is a, an organization that was founded on a kind of lie and on a, a hoax, as it were, about the threat to infrastructure from disinformation. It doesn't need to exist. There are enough federal security agencies. So as that happens on the one side, on the other side, the way in which the tech companies could be so easily co-opted is not just a function of certain political sympathies among tech executives for, let's call it the anti-Trump resistance or the sort of neoliberal establishment. It also has to do with the fact that they are operating private surveillance firms, that these companies collect information that would put most military surveillance operations throughout the world to shame. And the only way we're going to effectively deal with that, in my opinion, is to grant property rights for data. So in the same way that we understand property rights to be uh, essential to inherent in the American conception of liberty, we need to extend that to data until people have real rights over their own data, some proprietary relationship to their data, it's always going to be possible for uh, companies to sort of rip it off of them and use it against them. We have the Chinese Communist Party across the Pacific Ocean pursuing incredibly effective infiltration operations here in the US and Canada and the West. Um, very much having a structural whole of society approach, uh, extensive social credit system, and it's a very real, serious threat to this nation and frankly, frankly, the free world. And I imagine, again, that the folks that are in the American ruling class are looking at that. Well, there's there's even there's there's debate about this, but I imagine some of them are looking at that and saying we need something. We need to have some kind of consensus on our end to face that, right? And and so we, we do have to face that somehow. Look, I, we absolutely have to face it, but I, I'll tell you what I think um, the danger is, and then I'll, I'll tell you what I think we ought to do. The danger is that in competing with China, we become like China, and that's what has been happening so far. Everything I have described 
uh, over the past however long we've been talking, and uh, and I, I think there's been a lot that's covered. All of it could be sort of simply placed in a single basket as America becoming more like China. And the approach to the internet from the American ruling class, which was to enforce a official uniparty ideology over the whole country, to demand that corporations obey that party ideology, to break down the barriers between war and peace, between public and private, all of that's operating on the Chinese model. And to me, ultimately, it doesn't matter whether we become more like China because we're competing with China or because we're explicitly emulating China. If we're becoming more like China, we're doing something wrong. If the result of that competition is that we are adopting the Chinese methods of governance and social control, um, we'd be better off not competing with China in that way. Um, and, and this is only going to become more of a challenge as Chinese advances in artificial intelligence, uh, I think, pull ahead as it seems likely that they are going to do and, and already are to some extent as China is taking AI more seriously than the US, U.S. is in some ways. There will become even more of a temptation to emulate the Chinese model. And, you know, you get quotes from people like the head of CISA, Jen Easterly, who, you know, famously talked about policing the cognitive infrastructure of the U.S., how the Chinese have already sort of shaped their internet to their national priorities, and we need to do the same. And so there's a explicit model for the emulation of China along these lines that will only become more powerful as the AI competition uh, gets more intense, which is going to happen. I'm not only not a policy expert, I, I don't even do it as a hobby, you know, so I, I am much more interested in, in just trying to describe the reality in front of me than in making recommendations. But insofar as I have a recommendation to offer, it's America should go the American way and the nation's strength lies in its, its uniqueness and in its innovative spirit, in its independence, in its ability to um, absorb different kinds of people with different kinds of ideas and synthesize new things out of that, out of that, that new world um, mentality. And so that means that if the Chinese become sort of more uh, uniform, more um, pursue a sort of uniform, industrial, nationalized approach to AI, for instance, there will be uh, people here who say we need to do the same, but even better. But I would think that the thing we need to do is to run the other direction. Not to not develop our own AI, but to develop it in the American way, which is through American gumption and ingenuity and freedom, and to trust in that. And, um, you know, I think the American people still trust in that. Uh, America's leaders have to, have to regain their trust in the American way. Well, Jacob Siegel, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Jacob Siegel and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.
Hey everyone, if you enjoyed that last episode, you should check out our new documentary, The Unseen Crisis, Vaccine Stories You Were Never Told. And you can find it at unseencrisis.com.